I want to uh, first let you know that we are, are from West Virginia. We grow a wide variety of crops. We're market growers, and we have a training program there, too. If you'd like to talk to us more about that, we'll have a, a table open after lunch today. But uh, because we grow so much stuff uh, for, for marketing, uh, we've found that uh, we've had the blessing of having a lot of fresh stuff available to us most of the year. And that is really our preference for food, is to eat it fresh. And one of the things that we as a, a people have kind of lost sight of in the last couple of generations is that there is actually counsel in the Bible about how we eat certain things. And that counsel comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where it says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. And we as grocery consumers have typically just totally cast that aside. I remember as a youngster growing up, even in California, I was raised in Northern California and lived most of my life there, that the only times when I was a kid that we saw peaches or grapes in the grocery store was during peach season or grape season. If they weren't in season currently, then we had to rely on canned peaches or grape juice or some other form of preserved fruits. But today we have all of this abundance in our grocery stores from all over the world and we can get anything we want at any time we want. Of course, that's horribly compromised food because there's a lot of things that go into making that happen that are kind of behind the scenes and that most of us are not aware of. And uh, frankly, I think we need a hazardous material sign in front of every grocery store today. Uh, but even in our home gardens, uh, my preference is to eat seasonally. And uh, if we do that, we have found that even where we are located in West Virginia, we have fresh stuff on our table uh, year round. And uh, we currently have crops growing right now that we'll be going to home to. I have carrots, I have beets, I have kale, I have Brussels sprouts. Um, I, um, we've got some spinach. Uh, so we don't can a whole lot of vegetables for that reason. There are some things that we do preserve. Uh, and uh, Lenita will be sharing that with you. Uh, and we also preserve some of our staple crops, and that's what I'm going to talk about here first, because many of us uh, store pumpkins, for example, or winter squash, and I want to talk uh, from, from the grower's point of view about what's necessary to do that successfully before you even harvest it, because that is really important, and it's a lot, you know, some of our carrots, here's the, the crops that we store. Um, there's some things that we have to do with these crops. I'm going to talk about this first column here, and then Lenita will address the rest of it. But we keep corn in the way of cornmeal. Uh, we have dry beans. We do a lot of winter squash and pumpkins, potatoes, sweet potatoes, onions, garlic, and some herbs. Herbs can go on either side of this list. But one of the things that is important for storing these particular crops is that we, some of them require a period of curing. And that's actually preparation both before and shortly after harvest that needs to be taken before they will store well. And things like field corn, dry beans, winter squash, potatoes, sweet potatoes, onions, and garlic all require 
a, either a pre-curing or a curing process in order for them to store well. And I'm going to talk about corn first. Where we are, we have real moist weather conditions during corn harvest. So one of the things that we practice is we want to dry that corn down well before we harvest the corn to shell it off the ears and to make cornmeal from it. And we want all of the energy of that plant, and this holds true for other small grains too, if you're you know, in a capacity to be able to grow things like wheat or barley and uh, need to dry it more thoroughly, this works for that too. We, we do what's called shocking our corn, which is basically putting in stacks like you see behind me in this photograph and allowing it to feel dry. Uh, that stack was made by taking about a square yard of corn and leaving a corn plant rooted in the ground at each of the corners of that square yard, or six feet, or however, big, however large you want to make your stack. And then we cut all of the other stalks a couple inches off the ground and pile them together using those four corner posts, so to speak, to, to kind of anchor it to the ground. And then we just use a, a, a corn leaf to tie the whole thing together. And what that does is it stops all the moisture from the root system from continuing to keep that corn green for a longer period of time. And as the plant dries out, it dries out more evenly. All of the carbohydrates that are stored in the stem of the plant and the leaves migrate into the, the, the seed that is finishing off, and you get a better quality seed. This process helps with a couple of things at the cellular level in crops that allow it to be stored and kept for a longer period of time. Uh, the cell walls accumulate more potassium and calcium that hardens the cell walls so that they're more durable. It's called, you know, it's a hardening off of the crop that takes place when you do this. And uh, we shell the corn and, uh, uh, you know, grind it. We have a, a neighbor that has a, a, a flour mill that's powered by his tractor and he grinds this for us into various different grinds that we want and then we just basically store it in plastic bags in quantities that are suitable for our use. So uh, we get it back in 50, uh, 50 pound bags and then Lanita breaks it down into these smaller packages and my suggestion if you do this is to take these packages and put them in the freezer for two or three days and that process kills off any insects or uh, or insect eggs that might be in the flower when it's ground and pre prevent it, help prevent it from being infested with weevils and things. After it's been in there for a couple of days, we'll take it back out and just store it in a dark, dry environment. <clears throat> uh, we do uh, uh, cornmeal. We try to do cornmeal every other year uh, because it lasts for a long time. And when we do it, we usually grind about three to 500 pounds of, of corn to uh, to meet the needs that we have. Uh, we also do popcorn, similar uh, method. We shock the popcorn, let it dry thoroughly, and then just shell it off the cobs. Um, in order to store a, a seed or a grain, it's got to be lower than 12% moisture, or you run the risk of it rotting. So in terms of our popcorn, we do the same thing we did with the field corn, let it dry down thoroughly. If we get lots of periods of rain and the stalks get moist and wet, then we'll pull the cobs off the, off the stalks and bring them indoors and dry them down until they meet that criteria being less than 12%. And that's a fairly simple thing to determine. I uh, use my pocket knife as a moisture meter, and if I put my corn kernel or any seed 
on a hard surface and push down on it with my pocket knife. If it shatters, that's a good indication that it's thoroughly dry and suitable for storage. If it slices or if I crush it or if I cut through it, uh, it's not quite dry enough yet, but it'll shatter like dropping a glass if it's uh, at 12% or less. Dry beans is a similar process. We grow uh, quite a few dry beans as, as one of our staple crops, and uh, with this, we stop the irrigation when the seeds are fully formed. Uh, even though the plants may still be green and looking very vigorous, we want to cut the water off at that point. And when the seed is fully ripened, the skin won't be easily injured. And that's the point at which we cut the water off. So we'll open a few pods, examine the skins, kind of manipulate them with our thumbs a little bit. If it slips real easily, it's not quite fully mature. When that skin stays intact, uh, then we know that it's, uh, that it's mature. We cut the water off at that point. And one of the methods that you can use in a moist environment to cure these plants is to basically cut them off just above the ground. Uh, when they harvest commercial dry beans, that's what we do, is we actually use a, what's called a bean knife and we drag it through the field with a tractor and it simply cuts all the plant off and then the plant is left in the field for a period of time to cure until uh, before they go in and, and thresh the beans. And once the plants are, are completely dry, uh, and uh, that's indicated by the pods beginning to actually crack a little bit or pop open, uh, that's when it's time to, uh, to thresh uh, the beans. And that can be done either by hand or by uh, using an empty trash can and just taking the whole plant and taking all your frustrations out by beating it against the trash can. And, and that'll separate, oftentimes, the pods from the stems. You can throw the stems away, and then you've got a trash can full of, full of loose beans, full of pods, and full of leaf debris, typically. And uh, at that point, you can separate the leaf debris by pouring uh, those beans, or whatever's in the bottom of your trash can, uh, from one container into another in front of a box fan, just using the fan to blow the lighter material away and you repeat that process two or three times to eventually get the pods out of it too and uh, shell whatever is left that needs to be shelled by hand at that point. Finish drying them indoors, clean the seed uh, bag. Again, we temporarily freeze those uh, just to preclude any insect uh, hatch potential in the dry beans and then we store those in a cool dark location. Squash and pumpkins. Uh, we, just before we came here, we had lunch last Sabbath with a neighbor of ours who was lamenting that the butternut squash that he harvested in October uh, was already rotting in his storage. And um, uh, he thought it was because he didn't store it in a good place. And I shared with him that, no, that has nothing to do with it. It's the way that you cultured it at the end of the crop that caused it to store. And one thing with squash and pumpkins is you want to fertilize these only when you plant them. You want to make sure you've got enough nutrition in the ground when you plant them so that you're not adding additional nitrogen during the growth cycle. And the reason for that is the additional nitrogen will soften the, the fruits. It also uh, stimulates vegetative growth in the plant, and it won't harden off properly if you have too much nitrogen late in the growing season. So do your, your fertilization first. And again, once the fruits are fully formed, 
cut off the water. Um, how many of you have had cantaloupes from the, the southwestern desert areas, as opposed to cantaloupes that are grown in the southeast? Uh, okay, I, I thought there might be more of you. Uh, uh, anyway, I'm from the western states, so we're accustomed to southwestern grown cantaloupes, and they have far better flavor, and they're far sweeter than the ones that grow in this part of the country. That was one of the things that disappointed me about farming in West Virginia, is I haven't been able to get a really great cantaloupe. I get good ones, but they're not really great. Part of the reason is because at the end of the development cycle, uh, the sugars are built, as the plants are under stress and drying down, the carbohydrates accumulate in the fruits and the skins get harder, the cell walls, just as with the corn, get more durable and the, the, the sugar content starts to increase. And by cutting off the water, you allow that to take place. If you uh, are continuing to irrigate right up until you harvest, you're harvesting a fruit that has far more moisture in it and as a consequence will not store as well. It does slow the ripening, yes, yes, right, okay. So this is what we do, typically we'll bring them out of the field. We have lots of, of, of thunderstorms in our part of the country, so you, oftentimes when we harvest these things, there's mud and debris on the fruits themselves, so we'll wash that, and then we'll thoroughly dry them again uh, before we put them into any kind of storage, and they're best stored at room temperature in a dry, dark location. Now, a lot of the old-timers in our area leave their pumpkins out until the first frost, and they think that that's enough of a curing process. And uh, that can help, because essentially what you're doing there is you're leaving the pumpkin in the field uh, long enough, or as long as you can, before there's potential damage to the pumpkin itself. Uh, but I prefer to harvest most of my pumpkins and uh, winter squash. Uh, I time my planting so that we harvest those with at least two, to, two weeks to a month of warm weather left. And the reason for that is because they will greatly enhance the sugar content if they're cured after they're cut off the plant for a period of, of, of three weeks or so. Uh, one of the winter squashes that we grow that has become my favorite quickly is called a kabocha squash. It's sunshine kabocha. Um, and that particular squash, when you first harvest it, has a good flavor. But after three weeks of curing at 80 degrees, it's got a fabulous flavor. And if I wait too long in the season to harvest it, I can't get that cure. It, it, takes it still takes place, but it's not as dramatic. So instead of uh, you know, planting my pumpkins uh, later in the season and harvesting right before har uh, 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 frost, we, we do it earlier in the season so we have that time for curing them too. The other issue with leaving them till after the frost is then you run the risk of injury on the fruit too and oftentimes it won't store as long either. We have butternut squash that we um, manage this way uh, that has, has lasted for, uh, what, 16 months? 14, 16 months. So uh, we, we, we often are still eating butternut squash when the next year's crop is, is ready. So uh, potatoes, same thing. Uh, there's some advantage to withholding water on these crops that we're going to store towards the end of their growth cycle. As soon as the vines begin to die back after blooming and the potatoes are formed, uh, we 
cut off the water. We stop all irrigation. And that doesn't mean that we get occasional rainfall, but uh, we're not adding any additional water at this point in order to, to, to harden these off and dry them down again. Uh, we want to let the vines thoroughly wither before we dig them, and when we dig them, the potato skins should not easily be damaged. They're still somewhat fragile, uh, but you want the skin to be uh, pretty tough before you actually dig them out of the ground. We try to dig when the soil is dry enough so that we don't leave mud on the, on the skins, and if we can get them out of the ground clean, we, we just store them clean. If there's mud or any dirt that's still uh, attached to the potato, then we wash them immediately and uh, then dry them again thoroughly before we put them into storage. And when we wash them, we have large ventilated crates. I'll stack them in those crates. I'll put them in an area where they're not going to get wet from, from rain, typically in a building or a barn, and then run a fan on them for five or six days before we eventually put them in storage. And you want to store them in a, 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 only when they're thoroughly dry and in a dark location with lots of air movement, if possible. And you don't want to store most potato varieties anywhere where it's going to get below 43 degrees. You know, oftentimes we think of root cellars in our part of the country as a way of keeping things cool. The reality is that most of the root cellars are built to keep things from freezing. And uh, that's the case with potato storage, too. If they get too cold, you'll do cold damage to the potatoes. They'll turn black in the centers of them. They'll get kind of a tough, grainy heart to the potato. And uh, for the varieties that we grow, we don't want them to go below 43. <coughs> Sweet potatoes, same thing. Withhold water for the last 30 days before you're going to dig them and harvest them with enough warm weather at the end of the season so that you can cure your sweet potatoes. You folks down in this part of the country probably know a whole lot more about that than I do. But oftentimes in West Virginia, uh, people, we have a much shorter growing season before frost, so folks that get their sweet potatoes in late will just wait until the frost kills the vines and then dig whatever potatoes they have there. If you can get them in earlier and uh, get them to a, a, a reasonable size, you're actually better off harvesting them earlier, too, for the same reason. If they cure uh, for 80 at about 80 degrees for three weeks before storing, they'll be far more dense, they'll last longer, and they'll be much sweeter. And again, these are best stored at room temperature in a dark location, not in a cool environment, but at room temperature, which uh, I'm going to say is, is at our house, that's what, 40 to about 80 degrees? <laughs> we live in a large concrete building that's not real, uh, really well insulated. Uh, this was a, a, a sweet potato. That actually, I grew some sweet potatoes in a high tunnel uh, the first year that we were there, and this guy ended up weighing nine and a quarter pounds. And because he was kind of a centerpiece on our table for a while, we decided not to eat him. And I, then I got curious about how long this thing would last. And uh, at, at, at 26 months, my curiosity was satisfied, so I cut into it. And I can tell you that I probably wouldn't have wanted to eat it at that point. It was pretty, pretty pithy, and uh, uh, we, didn't, we didn't try to eat it. But uh, it's just an indication of, of by following some of these protocols of drying things down and curing them, you can get your crops to last a lot longer. Uh, we do a lot of garlic and a lot of onions, uh, more so every year. We've found that that's one of our, our most popular 
uh, products and it works well for us because we can grow a large crop of it and then store it for a period of time and sell a little bit over a long period of time which uh, for folks that are accustomed to growing fresh produce you know if you've got lettuce you can't do that so uh, we're growing more and more onions and garlic every year and uh, the same principles kind of hold true uh, you want to time your planting if you're growing them outdoors uh, so that you have a dry period uh, when they're going to be ready for harvest. Now, uh, for us, uh, that dry period starts in September, uh, but I want to get, I want to have onions for the market long before September, so we grow the vast majority of ours in a high tunnel. Uh, but the outdoor uh, onions that we grow, I plant later in the season, so they're not maturing in July, which is when they want to mature, or August, because we have so much rain at that time of year that it's hard for them to dry enough in the field to cure without rotting. And we have far less rot by growing them in the high tunnels where I can cut the water off uh, for uh, two or three weeks before we, before we pull the onions. Um, growing them outdoors, if we wait until September, things start to dry down a little bit. We have a lot better success growing them outdoors if I plant them late and then harvest them late too. Uh, I stop watering the onions as soon as the outer leaves, and this holds true for garlic too. Uh, when, the, when the outer leaves start uh, to turn a little bit yellow and we hold the water off for at least 20 days or so prior to harvest to harden them off. And after harvest, we bring them inside. I let the entire plant dry thoroughly, and uh, in some circumstances, you can hang clumps of them. We grow so many of them. What I do is I take one of the rooms in our school building, and I just spread them out all over the floor in there, and we actually use a humidifier, uh, I'm sorry, a dehumidifier to dry them out in that, in that classroom, and it's amazing how much water we pull out of that room. When I'm dehydrating the onions, uh, or, or not dehydrating them, but drying them down for storage, uh, we pull about 12 to 15 gallons a day of water out of that room. Now, we're, uh, these are onions, too, that were grown in the high tunnels and don't have excessive field moisture in them, but there's that much moisture that needs to come out of them, and we can't do it because July is uh, uh, one of our most humid months where we are, and to get that to dry down adequately, we, we use the dehumidifier. I tried growing them, or tried drying them down in a greenhouse one year and made a, a terrible mistake uh, because I, I simply put pallets on one of the beds inside a greenhouse that we weren't using that summer, and I spread all the onions out on those pallets, and it got hot, and I thought, this is gonna work great, that's gonna dry them down. Uh, but what happened instead was that they all got horribly sunburned. I didn't realize how sensitive to sunburn the actual onion itself is, but that was a big mistake. We lost about a third of the crop that year in that experiment. Once we've got them uh, dried down thoroughly, we trim the tops, trim the roots, and then we store them in a dry area, again, where there's some good air movement. And uh, these are just... Uh, this, this is actually how we do store them in these black crates that are ventilated. <clears throat> after they're dry, yes, absolutely. Pardon me? 
No, they don't dry faster, they dry slower. But it, once, when you cut that top off, you've created an injury that's moist that is a, a wonderful uh, superhighway for bacteria to enter and other infections to enter. So yes, the tops are totally dry when we cut them off. Okay, the herbs that we grow are basil, dill, oregano, rosemary, and cilantro, and we dry all of those, and we do some other things with those. And at this point, I'm going to let Lenita take over and share with you some of the other aspects of how we preserve things. The point that I'm trying to emphasize here is the preparation of the crop before you store it is important. Watching Bob, it looks like I need to be over here because every time he turned to the right, he lost volume. Can everybody hear? Anyhow, um, a couple things about onions and garlic that I found kind of interesting too is that one year, as a matter of fact, when the outsides of the onions as they were drying down, I think I was traveling and I came back and Bob had a whole room full of onions, but they were moist. And instead of throwing them out, but these are things you have to learn on your own farms and in your own experience, I, <laughs> I spent a full day peeling all these onions out, taking off their rotted outer side and get, taking them down as far as I could go. And then I just took a slap chopper. I don't know if you, any of you have seen them. I don't even know what they're called, but they're a device you stick your half onion and then you stamp it down and it goes into, and I dehydrated bags and bags and we called them onion chips and we sold them at the market. And the ones that were left over, we ziplocked in the freezer bags and stuck them in the freezer. So, you know, I only mention that little anecdote because take your own farm experience, your own economy and your own time economy and decide what you wanna do with the abundance of the crops that God gives you. And, you know, don't be afraid to experiment because in the end result, whatever doesn't work, we'll go back to your soil and your compost and it'll nourish your soil. So, you know, I, Bob has experience, um, lots of experience with both chemistry and science and physics and I don't. I mean, I, I can't say I don't have any, but I was new to all this. So at the beginning when I, we, we at Berea Gardens actually got a brick and mortar home, I had so much to learn. And I solicited the wisdom and the advice of people in our community. You can network with people through the farmer's market, but of course you have to grow things in order really to go to farmer's market. You can visit a farmer's market, but you're standing in line. You can get tidbits, but I encourage you to make friends where you go. I just came from Pam's hospitality, and of course it just resonates with me, but network with people and learn from their wisdom and stifle the urge to necessarily give them too many health tidbits right up front about how they do things. Just learn from them and be their friends and listen and then take the principles that you know and apply it. Enough of that. Um, this is cilantro. My sister found us a Berea mug. I just took that sitting on the concrete driveway because I thought it was pretty. Um, cilantro doesn't grow at the same time as tomatoes. It likes cold. So another little principle that I can share with you is, whoa, I don't know how I did that. But um, one, another principle I can share with you is that, you know, be creative in what you do. I, I didn't want to use Walmart cilantro, and I didn't want to drive an hour to um, 
Kroger. So I took my cilantro and I just chopped it up fresh. I wanted it fresh. But you can't hold it fresh for two or three months until you're ready to make salsa. So I chopped it up and I packed it into ice cube trays and poured water into it and froze it and it stayed green. And when I was ready to make my salsa, you can boil off that extra water. You can just pop your ice cube trays right in there and you have your, your, salt, you, you have your own cilantro and you know it hasn't been radiated and you know it, it, it doesn't have the other things that you have to kind of be aware of. This is basil, basil and dill, and I don't think so cilantro, but basil and dill, big stalks. I don't have a lot of time. I hung, I had Bob hung, hang me a laundry line in one of the rooms, and I just chopped the plant. I've done a number of things. I've hand stripped it, I've hand picked leaves. You don't have time in the volume. I don't have time in that volume. My daughter was at home up until a couple years ago, and now it's me. And Bob's busy doing other things. I do a lot of the harvest. So I hung these by their little arms over a laundry line, and I spread a clean sheet underneath them and let them dry. And a lot of their leaves will automatically fall off, and I want it to be a little bit controlled because I don't want all the stems and leaves. And then once they're dry, I would strip the leaves off of those and spread them out further and let them dry some more and so on. But you get the idea. Now you can also hand pick them off if your volume is smaller, hand pick them off and put them in a dehydrator and they'll stay a little more green than mine did. But the aroma and the, the value of it, and if you just smell the store-bought as opposed to that that you harvest yourself, it's amazing. And it, I've kept my dried herbs for up to a couple years and shared them and made Christmas gifts out of them. This is one dehydrator. Um, this is a Nesco and it's good. We've had to replace some parts a time or two. Uh, I think somebody originally gave us one. I don't even know if you can see the color variation, but you can buy trays and go up as high. You can rotate those. Um, I've dried peppers, I've dried cherry tomatoes, I've dried apples. Um, you can dry a number of things, and that's, there's whole books and volumes in, in drying. And, and fruit leathers, if you have kids at home, you could puree your fruits and make fruit leathers. Not in this particular dehydrator. You'd probably have to use an Excalibur with the screens, but that's another whole, and I'm really giving you just an overview because of the time frame. But just um, know that, that the possibilities are pretty endless, and if you get uh, research, you can find a lot of good information. Here's two really excellent resources. I had the actual physical book when we did the pre-conference, but the Ball Blue Book not only is a really accurate source of information, but it has wonderful pictorial, step-by-step, thorough instruction, step-by-step step with pictures that shows you how to do. The two most common things I think that probably all of you will do will be green beans and tomatoes. They have a two-page spread that gives you absolute step-by-step -step instructions. Um, and then I just looked up the National Center for Home Food Preservation because they put out a really nice bulletin. And they go into more of the safety and the chemistry and the reasons for doing what, what we do. 
Um, generally, Bob will tell people, uh, and I kind of cringe a little, that my wife is fearless <laughs> and that I seldom follow a recipe. But when you are actually canning, following a recipe is pretty important because of the chemistry. So just keep that in mind. So why do we can? We can to preserve enough heat to, to keep our harvest safe. And what we want to do is stop or inactivate the enzymatic activity. And we also want to kill the microorganisms, such as yeast molds and bacteria. That's pretty important. <laughs> One of the worst that frightens me, and I'll give you a little, a little story about this. Botulinum is a form of food poisoning that's caused by the bacterium Clostridium botulinum. It's spore produced, and that can't be killed in a traditional water bath canner which brings your water up to boiling point at 212 degrees. Now, it might actually kill the microorganism itself, but it won't kill the spores. You don't want to take a chance with this, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. So what we have to do is bring it up to at least 240 degrees, and your typical times, I noticed in the Ball Blue Book, is up to 250 degrees, and it gives you specifics about pressure and about time for each product. And it talks more about pH balance, because pH balance is a huge um, consideration when you're canning. Uh, the story. My sister cleaned out the refrigerator. When I was about 12, we'd moved from the city. We had a little country place near Collegedale, uh, um, Tennessee. And my sister cleaned out the refrigerator and threw out green beans. It was the spring, so everything was having babies. So we had scads of chickens and babies and ducks and babies, and we had dogs and puppies. She threw out the green beans out the backyard. Chickens eat anything, right? Well, they ate that, and they started seizing and flopping. It was horrible. And then the dogs ate the chickens, and the dogs started seizing and dying. It was horrible. You don't want botulism. Be careful. I, I, I encourage you to be creative, but I also encourage you to use really good science and have a good reference and make sure that your equipment is in good running order. Your water bath canner, you can actually do that in a stock pot in your kitchen, you know, with two or three jars if you have it. But when it comes to pressure canning with your low acid foods, please follow your directions and be careful. Green beans, you can do all kinds of things when you're canning. This is where you can be creative. You can, I would recommend, of course, when you harvest your green beans, triple wash them. Make sure you have all your debris out. I take the blossom end, not the blossom, but the stem end off of mine. I guess that is the same. Anyhow, I take that off. Depending on my time and when the season is, I will chop them in, or if I have enough lids, you know, if I have enough jar lids. I might want to pack more. I think generally, roll of thumb, oh boy, I'd be pushing it. I think it's maybe two pounds of product per quart, possibly, or, or per, but, but anyhow, you can look that up. It's, it's readily available. But I'll cut them really small, or in these, I didn't. I, I left their little tails and did them upright. I thought it was pretty. I put some dill, and I put some 
peppers and I think some whole cloves of garlic just to, to, but you'd have to make sure you process it at the time that is indicated for the longest time frame um, ingredient that's in there, if I said that correctly. All this you can find out from those sources. There's lots and lots of information. We won't belabor that. There's tomatoes. These are washed tomatoes. I've had as many as 26 bushels bleeding out on the floor, stacked sideways, looking at that thinking, oh, how am I ever going to do this? I had to learn because I was from the city. And I got married young, and, I, and I, I went right to work, and time has never been my friend. And <laughs> I didn't learn. But when, and I didn't like waste. I didn't like any waste. Now my concept of waste is different now than it once was. And as I said, you know, you have to look at your, all the demands on your time and pray and let God guide you. But there was one day I had in the background there, that's our kitchen. When we bought the old school, there was also an old gymnasium where they used to do hot dogs and there was still some restaurant equipment. I was blessed with a 10 burner stove that you're not going to have that luxury, most of you, but that was amazing. But what happened was I married a professional grower and I had a 10 burner stove and I still didn't know anything about canning. So <laughs> I had this huge overwhelming volume. But what that afforded me is the opportunity to learn <laughs> the right ways, the wrong ways and to network with neighbors and friends. And I've given a lot of produce away, lots and lots of produce away. Um, tomatoes, I can whole tomatoes. I can spaghetti sauce, which has evolved over time to be a lot easier. I will mention for you ladies and men that make spaghetti sauce, the old method where you bring it to simmer. If you have a 13, 13, oh, I want to say it's, it's, it's a pot large enough to bathe a small child in. I've had that full, a simmer. Um, stirring, I, I had a friend make me a huge ladle out of a barn board. But, you know, those kinds of volumes are so overwhelming. And when you do spaghetti sauce, unless you want to add paste to that, which most canning recipes tell you to do, and I think, why in the world would I grow all these tomatoes? And I'm looking out in the backyard, and I still see 30 bushels that I could, you know, <laughs> that I could pick. Why would I buy canned tomato sauce from Mexico or wherever and put in my sauce? So I'm not doing that. I would simmer and stir and simmer and stir, and then you'd scorch, and then you'd take the whole thing at risk to yourself and pour it in another pot. Not a good situation. I was gifted a couple of big roasters. I'm vegetarian, but you know what? These roasters are amazing. I put my tomato sauce, my spaghetti sauce in there, and I let it slow simmer overnight with a cheesecloth over it so that it can evaporate, but you don't have bugs in there. And there's a number of things that, you know, uh, shortcuts that you can do besides those recipes and the cooking times and the altitude adjustments. Peppers. Green peppers are green here only because Bob Gregory probably told me he was going to cut these plants down because he knows what he's doing with crop cycles and rotations. And I can't stand waste, so that's probably why they're green, because green peppers are just that. They're green. I would have let those ripen, just so that you know. The red and yellow ones are ripe. The rest of them are not. I take mostly my red peppers, but some yellow, and sometimes I'll do them together. This is how I do peppers. 
I don't can peppers. I don't like the taste of canned peppers. Um, and canning is not inexpensive. I'm just going to say that. Canning is not inexpensive. By the time you have jars, lids, sterilizing, water bath time, you know, your energy, it, there's more than just the initial cost. There's your health cost, but it's not inexpensive. So I'm not going to frivolously can a bunch of product that I'm not going to eat. So with peppers, I cut them actually lengthways. I, these were stock photos because I forgot to put them in. But I cut them lengthways, and I cut them in strips, but they'd be lengthways. And then they can really pack together, and I put them in freezer Ziploc bags, and I vacuum the air out of them, label them, date them, and I put them in the freezer. Now, when I go to use them, uh, most of you have made cashew cheese, right? Um, they ask for, I don't know, what, four ounces of pimentos? Don't bother with pimentos. Freeze your red peppers and just pull off enough to color in your Vitamixer as it's going. The color that you want for your cashew cheese, and it's your own peppers, and you're not buying that little jar of pimento. Use your own. And, and then for stir fries, for your gluten pepper steaks, for whatever you want it for. You've got your peppers and you can take out as much as you want. So I always have one in my home freezer, in my, you know, refrigerator freezer. And then I, and then I have, you know, 30 in the freezer <laughs> in the hall in a, in a chest freezer. And you have peppers for whatever you want them for. Now sweet corn, as I told you, I I've taken tips from neighbors, friends, canned. My corn gurus can theirs, and they like popping open a can. I don't like canned corn, and I don't frivolously can. Um, most of this I ended up giving them to my corn gurus, <laughs> but I like mine frozen. So there's step instructions in the Ball Blue Book on how to do that. Um, I do it in huge volumes. Ch uh, Charlie, who actually we're going to see this weekend, is amazing with those nimble hands of his, and he can cut off three bushels of corn off the cob while his wife and I are busy doing everything else. But be careful. I've had quite a bad injury from a mandolin, so just know what you're, you know, be careful with your equipment, um, you know, because that is risky when you're cutting it off. And the cobs, you can actually boil and make a corn jelly. I don't do that, but you can. And you can scrape those cobs later. You're going to be wearing all your corn from head to toe. And you can make creamed corn, which isn't so bad in pint jars, if you like creamed corn, um, out of those little fragments that get left after you cut it off the cob. So there's a number of things you can do. Or you can just throw them out, and the birds will enjoy them, and they'll eventually compost in your... They tell you, uh, and, and we'll do more questions at the end, but they tell you to pre-boil to pre and then cut. Now your kernels are soggy. Cut it raw and then pre-boil and drain, in my opinion and experience. That's my youngest granddaughter, Lydia, this past year. And we grow a number. Oh, and, and, that, and you know, really, that's all I'm going to say about canning because 
I will tell you that my 90-plus-year-old neighbor that helped me with those 26 bushels of tomatoes with her husband before she, he died, um, she cans everything, and I mean everything. Celery stalks, potatoes, bananas, you name it. It goes in a jar, and it goes in a root cellar. And when her kids come, her adult kids, they leave with not only her love and affection, but with um, canned goods. And then they always bring the jars back. And if you're new to the country and somebody gives you a jar of food, save that jar, fill it with something from home, and give it back to them. That is country hospitality and ethics. Um, at least, at the minimum, save that jar and make sure you give it back to them. That's, that's really a true code of conduct. Berries. We grow blueberries, strawberries, black raspberries, red raspberries, and then we have wild blackberries, and I think maybe we have blackberries now too. I, I didn't get too many of them. The birds got them this year, but the blueberries were amazing, and not every year is going to be the same, so go ahead and freeze more so that you can, so maybe red raspberries will do really well one year, and the blueberries not so much, and so on. So freeze a little bit more. When you freeze your berries, well, first of all, your softer berries, your, your raspberries, pick them perfect. It's hard to do. It's hard to throw out that one that you damaged the end of it, but do just throw it out because they will not keep. They'll mold overnight because you're going to take those in. You're going to wash your hands before you pick. You're going to, if you're like us, you're not going to put pesticides on your crops anyhow. So ours are up off the ground. Don't pick them dirty, especially raspberries. Don't pick them imperfect. Pick them perfect. Take them in. Freeze them. Your blueberries, you can, some of you that aren't color impaired can see that there's some pink ones. And if you pick in the later evening, you're going to find that the shadows are such that you're going to have quite a few of them that aren't quite ripe. Just lay them out, put newspaper or cardboard over them, and check them frequently. Don't have them too deep because they will all ripen, and then you can freeze them. The, uh, but not so with the raspberries. I learned that the hard way. Anyhow, I learned that the hard way. Berries can be frozen, just like they are, or you can make pies. You can make smoothies. You could make smoothie bases. You can do a number of things and freeze them. But remember to label and date and, and pay attention. I think they tell you you have one year for frozen product. I've used it for longer than that, but I think that is the recommendation. <clears throat> grapes. Um, we have a lovely stand of grapes after our German Shepherd puppy dug it up a few times trying to get it started, and we just replaced them. But they come back every year, and then if you prune them and do the right things that Bob knows more about than I do, they will come up and they'll produce grapes. Again, some years better than others. I've done a number of things with grapes. I've picked the whole clumps. I've tried to painstakingly pick only the ripe ones off the clumps. I've, you know, I've chopped bits of them, which I learned wasn't a good idea. Anyhow, I've done a number of different things. And I've canned the juice, because that's what, that's what you had to do. I use this juicer. You can get it from layman's. You can't see the whole little um, catheter or nipple or whatever. You can't see the, the, the little tube there. But that, 
three-tiered system works beautifully. Now, you can do it other ways. People will can the entire grapes, just water packet, and they pour water. It turns gray. It's not really palatable. I did this, and then I canned it. It was thick, nice grape juice. And then you water bath it, and now it's gray. And we drank it because it's, you know, but because I'm sure there's still lots of vitamins and minerals. But I didn't think, oh, let's go have some grape juice. I did that for about three years. And this year, I thought, mm, I'm going to freeze my grape juice. And that's what I did. And wow, I advocate freezing it. And you see where they left them in clumps? Do wash them really good, but none of that debris is going to go into your juice. And, you know, it, it, so all that's going to come out is your juice. And it's going to be, I would have it in a, a lower level from the stove where this is simmering, and it'll be draining into that pot. And when that's done, then I would bring it to room temperature and then freeze it. And there's also a formula I, I was noticing on how many pounds of product you can put in your freezer at one time without dropping your freezer temperature and creating crystals and other things. So, you know, read up on those things. Our class doesn't allow us to go into all that. Thank you. And we'll have questions at the end. I just have a couple more things I want to say, and then we'll, we'll take some questions, and uh, Lenita will be available for those, too. Uh, one of the things, too, that we do that is very common for home uh, gardeners is uh, we'll oftentimes have a glut of one crop that needs some short-term storage, and by short-term, I'm talking maybe 60 to 90 days. I know that we do this frequently with things like cauliflower, cabbage, beets, carrots. Um, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do, if you are a home gardener and you are growing a serious amount of food, and many of you have probably figured this out already, uh, but get yourself a nice-sized used refrigerator to use for this purpose to use just for storing the gluts that you might have from time to time because many of these things will store and maintain really good quality uh, for weeks. Most people don't realize it, but the produce that we get at our grocery stores, uh, even things like fresh lettuce, are often six to ten weeks old before we even buy them. And that means that if you picked it on your place and it's grown organically and it's uh, well-nourished and a good, healthy plant, It'll last that long for you in storage, too, if you have some cold storage for it. One thing to keep in mind is it needs to go into storage clean and dry, just like the things that we discussed earlier today. And uh, the other thing is that you don't want to seal things when they're in storage. You can see the carrots here in this crate. That's how we store them, is just like that. Um, and uh, they will tend to dry down a little bit while they're in storage, and... Some things will get a little tougher while they're in storage, but sealing them is, is, is not a good idea, perhaps with the exception of some of the, the more delicate greens. Things like lettuce and kale will also store for a long period of time. We do put those in plastic bags. And <clears throat> for many uh, uses, oftentimes we're tempted to use things like trash bags or other forms of convenient plastic products for our foodstuffs, and I strongly suggest that you abandon that practice. 
Uh, most plastic bags have uh, many, many toxic ingredients in them, and there are food-grade uh, plastic bags that are available. We actually use a bag on our farm that holds about a bushel of product. It's about the same size as a 30-gallon trash can bag, but it's food-grade plastic, and uh, th those are, are not as heavy and not as durable as a trash bag, but uh, we've been able to reuse them. Uh, to some degree, they only cost about 20 cents a piece, and uh, you can uh, find those uh, actually on Amazon. If you're looking for food-grade storage bags, I would suggest that you do that. Um, apart from that, I think we're about done with the presentation. If you have questions, uh, either for me or Lenita, we'd be happy to, to take those now. Yes, ma'am. She asked if, if we use vacuum sealers and if vacuum sealers are bag. I have no objection to using a vacuum sealer, but we really don't have any products that we store where I think that would present a great advantage. Um, one of the disadvantages of using a vacuum sealing uh, process, and I'll talk about this this afternoon when we talk about seeds. You know, occasionally we'll we'll save some of our pumpkin seeds and roast them and, and that type of thing. But seeds are actually alive. And most things that are alive need some oxygen. And I know that seeds will store viably much, much longer if there's some oxygen in the environment. You never want to vacuum seal seeds for that reason. I, yes. I do want to make one comment on that. I actually would like to have uh, more of a vacuum sealer bag system simple, not, not expensive, because I think that you would reduce some of the freezer burn and some of the process with freezing the number of things that I do freeze, um, food-wise, peppers, um, I even tomato paste I've done in little tiny Ziploc bags and put them in a bigger one, but it's a little more messy, and I, I, I haven't worked with a vacuum sealer, but I see the advantage of it for freezing. She's talking about the complications of a home um, food preservation system as opposed to me having a gym kitchen, correct? Yeah, basically. Um, this is one of the things where I really encourage you to, you know, you can go to yard sales, you can go to your local tractor supply, especially at certain times of the year, and start with a water bath canner. And you can do that right on your kitchen stove. And sometimes it's more convenient for me, and I actually do that in my own kitchen too this year i was really busy so typically they tell you not to um not to use the skins say for example in your spaghetti sauce and the seeds and they'll encourage you to eliminate that probably for bitterness maybe for taste i don't know but this year i did small batches because it was trickling in and i was doing a lot of other projects and i actually made a lot of sauce right on my stove not with the roasters but on my stovetop and I went ahead and canned them right there in a tall stock pot because I could keep doing laundry and other things while I did that instead of that dedicated time to just being enslaved to the canning kitchen for a day or two. Well, one of the things that I'll add to that is when we can, we can large quantities, and that facility that we have is awesome for, you know, if we're going to do 100 or 200 quarts in a day, it's great to have that available, but it's certainly not necessary. Don't let and, it discourage And one of the reasons that, uh, that, that we can so much 
is because we're feeding people that come through our, our training program. So, you know, uh, one week out of the month, we've got a restaurant where we're serving three meals a day. So we go through, through a lot more of those types of things than, than you would in a home environment. So find the economy of scale that is right for you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.